Would you classify yourself as being a very private person? Um, I guess so. But the main thing is I like to be able to choose when I show what I want to show of myself. So it strikes me as really strange when someone says, oh, but you use social media, so why would you care about your private health information being online across the country? I choose what I want to show on social media. And yeah, I do curate that. And I think most people do in the digital age. Um, so why should we not have a say in, in what information is available on this database? Hey, this is Think Digital Futures. I'm Joe Koning. On today's show, we're talking about the digital health summary system known as My Health Record. Just now, you heard from a woman named, well... I could be called, um, like, Lisa or Donna or... Um, Let's call her Lisa. You can say I'm a 31-year-old woman um, living in, um, in Sydney. And so would you be comfortable saying that you grew up in the... or near the Blue Mountains? Um, yeah. We'll hear the rest of Lisa's story a little bit later. But before that, here's what you need to know. My Health Record is designed to be a digital summary of your key health information. It contains things such as diagnoses, allergies, prescriptions, specialist reports, referrals, diagnostic imaging, and more. It's not meant to replace your physical health record, but act as a supplement to make it easier to keep track of all these details. On the 14th of May, 2018, the government and Health Minister Greg Hunt said that on the 16th of July there would be a three-month period in which you could choose to opt out of the system. If you didn't, you would have a record created for you. This made a lot of people irate. People knew the government had a poor record when it came to digital privacy, after witnessing events like the 2016 census hack. And so they didn't trust that their private and important health information would be safe. And there were other concerns as well, but we'll get to those later on. First, how we got to here. In 2012, the digital health record was officially launched. At the time, it was known as the Personally Controlled Electronic Health Record. It was essentially the same thing, but it was a voluntary system. You needed to opt in to have one. After three years of operation, in May of 2015, less than 10% of eligible Australians had signed up for one of these records. But for the system to work, it needed numbers. The health minister at the time, Susan Lay, said that the low numbers were undermining the system's clinical effectiveness. So they found a way to get more people on the system. And they did so with some help from behavioural economics. The first thing to remember about economics is that it's always been about behaviour. This is Jane Hall, Distinguished Professor of Health Economics at the University of Technology, Sydney. The simplest economic model of behaviour that we get taught is the economic rational agent who considers all the possibilities and picks out the one that's the best for them. This rational economic person is known as homo economicus, economic man, 
a perfect decision maker, acting purely out of self-interest. But the thing about the model is that it doesn't really reflect what happens in the real world. Because people are impulsive, because making decisions is not costless, um, it can be quite difficult in terms of the complexities of the decisions that need to be made, but also in terms of just gathering the information you need on different alternatives. So there's a long history that's led to this attempt to get better models of how people really make decisions. And that's increasingly informed by insights from psychology. In 2008, an American economist named Richard Thaler came along with something he called nudge theory. In it, he talks about nudges, and he describes them as any small feature in the environment that attracts our attention and influences the behaviour we make. Thaler talks about the architecture of decision-making. Can we change the way we set up decisions to help people make uh, the best decision for them? Here's an example of a nudge that Richard gives. Take the example of the cafeteria downstairs. Somebody had to decide where to put the salad bar, where to put the burgers, where to put the ice cream, where to put the coffee. That person is a choice architect because the arrangement of the food influences the choices that we make. So, for example, in our cafeteria, you have to go buy the salad bar to get to the burgers. That increases the chance that you're going to go for the salad which is exactly what you want to do, you've been nudged. And it's a good example because, of course, somebody had to design that cafeteria. There has to be some choice architecture. The salad has to be in front of the burgers or behind the burgers. Given that you have to arrange the food in some order, we argue, why not have the choice architect arrange the food in such a way that people will be happier and healthier And in the same way that nudges can influence you to take the salad rather than the burgers, nudges can also be used to make you buy things. Consider your standard supermarket. Picture yourself standing amongst the shelves, trying to pick out an item. Your eyes naturally go to the shelves that are at eye height, and things that are on the top shelves or the bottom shelves get much less exposure. And remember, we aren't homo economicus. We are irrational. Economic man shouldn't mind whether the cereal is at eye height or the bottom shelf. He should just check them all out and the prices and compare it all and go ahead. Um, But people don't do that, and particularly the people who've got kids, you know, screaming at them because they're keen to get out of the supermarket or they're in a hurry to get home to do something or they're on their way to work and they're in a hurry. And so nudges can be really effective. We can be influenced into buying things, or choosing certain things over others, or even being a part of things that we never would have otherwise. All this without us ever really noticing, sometimes until it's too late. Lisa first heard of the My Health Record back in 2012. She saw the good in it, but ultimately she decided that... This is something that could potentially be really useful for a lot of people. She saw the good in it, but ultimately she decided that for her... The risks outweigh the benefits... Um, and I didn't want to be part of the system, and I was glad it was opt-in, and I left it at that. And then the government flipped the switch. I found that the only thing I could do was 
to register to receive a notification of when I would be able to opt out. So I did that. And I thought, that'll be good. Okay, I'll opt out. And, you know, um, for me, it was going to be okay. So she waited and she was ready to get out of it. Probably about a month later, um, I got the email saying that I could opt out. And then on the 16th of July, that was the first day anyone could opt out. So I went to the website to opt out and um, I was lying down in bed and I um, had my laptop and I found that I um, already have a My Health Record. Lisa's My Health Record had already been created for her. She asked herself, how? How had she possibly given her consent for this? She was certain that she hadn't. I was like, yeah, this is a big mistake. When she logged into her record for the first time, she could see all of her data just sitting there, and she was upset. She thought, how long had all of this been online for? Anything I've been prescribed, um, any medical practitioner I've been to, three different medical providers had uploaded some things onto the My Health record for me, um, obviously without talking to me about it because it's something that I would have remembered. We've had a saying in public health a lot of the time that make healthy choices easy choices. So just in case you're asking, what does nudge theory have to do with the My Health record? Turns out nudge theory works really well when designing public health policies. And a really good example of that in action, organ donation. If you look at the relationship between consent and donor rates across certain countries, you see something interesting. In countries that are you would expect to be fairly similar, so the high-income countries across Europe, you see a marked difference in organ donation rates between countries which have an opt-in or an opt-out case. So if you have to do something to actually um, say, yes, you can use my organs if, if, I, if I die... Uh, organ donation rates are very low. If the default option is we assume you're willing to donate your organs unless you opt out of this donation system, the donation rate is, is much, much higher. And it's clear that these differences aren't due to public attitudes towards donation. If you do community surveys, you can still see that people say, yes, I think it's a good thing that organs can be reused after death to give someone else a chance of life or a chance of better quality of life. It's something else. It's just structuring the decision in a different way, making it much easier to be an organ donor than to not be an organ donor. It's the power of the default. If you present the default as you don't have this, but you can choose it, people have to consciously make a decision, maybe get some information and say, yes, I'll do it. If the default is you're going to have this, but if you really don't want it, you can opt out, a lot more people are likely to stay in the program, whatever it is. You see, defaults are sticky. Research has shown that Whatever the default choice is, people are likely to stick with that. So if you want more people in your system, all you have to do is set the default to make someone be a part of that system. It seems like a very sensible thing to say, let's have an opt-out system rather than an opt-in 
system. Let's get more people joined up. All the records will become more useful and we will be able to achieve these very practical benefits of improving treatment and saving lives. Nudge theory in relation to organ donation is one thing, because for the most part, people seem to agree that donating organs is a good thing. But when it comes to digital health records, it's a different story. There are large groups of the population who would find themselves at risk if they were sucked into this system without knowing it. Young people, sex workers, people in the LGBTQIA community, people living with HIV, people dealing with situations of domestic violence, and the list goes on. Basically, anyone with privacy or prosecution concerns could face having their information outed for all sorts of people to see. And so you have to ask, with so much at stake, was the government right to do this? Now, you can have quite a long philosophical argument about whether that's paternalistic or whether it's libertarian and it's just setting different architecture. And we see that in the, in the academic literature. How far should governments go um, and at what point does it become social engineering? Because what happens when someone gets sucked into the system without knowing it? Hey, you're listening to Think Digital Futures. I'm Joe Koning. In case you're just joining us, this episode, we're talking about the My Health Record. When Lisa found out that she had a My Health Record, her first instinct was to try and cancel it straight away. Then I remembered reading somewhere that if you do cancel the account, um, the data is actually not deleted from the database and it is kept on the database for 30 years after the person dies. So... I wasn't really pleased with that, <laughs> and I'm not really the kind of person who just accepts that kind of thing. So um, I rang the My Health Record phone line. Lisa wanted answers. This was an opt-out system. Why couldn't she opt out? And it was a bit stressful because I was at work for some of it, so I was doing this in my lunch break, and um, I can't really be on the phone when I'm at work, so I I'd be waiting and waiting and waiting and have to make the decision of whether or not to hang up and go back to work or whether they might be just about to answer and could help me. Um, but I really wanted to get to the bottom of it and I really wanted someone to be responsible and say, oh, well, that's who created your account or that's who created your account. The people on the phone couldn't help her. They too didn't know how her record came to exist. My record doesn't actually tell me when it was created or by whom. I've heard that most do, most tell you who created it, um, but my record just goes back to, uh, I think it's May 2017, when a provider first uploaded a document about me. After a lot of effort, Lisa got through to one of the more experienced helpline operators, what they call a Tier 3 officer. But again, he didn't know how her record was created. He was really sorry that he couldn't help, and he wanted to give her more information but he said that all he could do was launch an investigation. So I'm still waiting to hear back with that. In the meantime, Lisa reached out to the three healthcare providers who she could see had uploaded her data to the system. 
some of the staff were apologetic. They weren't even aware that they had uploaded her data to the system. They said they'd be more careful in the future and that their training hadn't caught up to where the system was at. And then others played it off. They told her it was media hype and that she should trust the system. And then Lisa remembers this one conversation she had with a manager of one of the practices. She says she was yelling at me on the phone saying, it's not my fault, why are you blaming me? And I said, I'm, not, I'm really not blaming you. I just want to find out what happened and I want to find out how and where I can submit my written complaint so that this doesn't happen to other people and so that you're aware of the problem. About an hour later, I'd gone back into work after my lunch break and I got a, another call from her and I thought, OK, here we go. She's going to yell at me or we're going to end up just misunderstanding each other. Um, or she's spoken to the doctor and they've had, you know, they've sorted out their misunderstanding. Um, and she actually sounded a bit panicked when she when I answered the phone. And I said, oh, what's, what's going on? And she said, oh, well, after our discussion, I decided to check if I had a record. And it looks like I do. And I didn't sign up for it. And I didn't want one. And I, I don't know what to do now. To Lisa, the situation seemed backwards. I couldn't believe that she was coming to me. I'm the patient and she's the practice manager and she doesn't know what to do about this. And she actually asked me, so can I opt out? And that's what a lot of people have been telling me. Oh, don't worry, you have a complaint, but it, it can be resolved. You can just opt out. And I have to explain to them, I cannot opt out. If I cancel the record, it stays on the database. So I told the practice manager that and I said, well, don't worry, you can call the My Health Record phone line, but only if you have several hours to wait and you may not get the help that you want. To Lisa, it was another hallmark of a system that didn't work. The fact that even health professionals were confused, it reinforced the idea that she was right to try and opt out in the first place. And though she hasn't learned for sure why her record was created, there's one explanation that seems pretty likely. So before the opt-out method could be rolled out for every Australian, the government needed to test how things would go. So in 2016, they set up two opt-out trials, one in North Queensland and one in the Blue Mountains, Nepean region, west of Sydney. It was actually through Twitter that I found out that there was um, an opt-out trial. Um, and I thought, surely I'm not unlucky enough to be a participant in that kind of trial, and I would have known about it. Lisa grew up on the outskirts of the Blue Mountains, and though she now lives in the city of Sydney, she may still have been registered back there. It was kind of hard to find out information about the trial, but I found the evaluation of the trial in 2016. And then I couldn't find out whether or not my postal address would have been affected. There was a link on one of the websites to say which postcodes were affected, but that link wasn't working when I found it. It just led to a 404. The boundaries of the trial comprised 440,000 people and four local government areas including the Blue Mountains, the Hawkesbury, Lithgow and Penrith. 
98% of those people in the area had my health records created for them. And Lisa's old address is within that boundary. And when she asked her mother, it turns out that she too had a record created for her. But if Lisa and her mother are a part of that percentage, they say they never heard anything about the trial. They say they didn't see any advertisements. They never received any mail. Nothing. When she was on the phone to that Tier 3 officer, the trial's actually something Lisa asked about. He said it was his educated guess that I was part of the trial, but there was no info there. And so that was the best she could get, an educated guess. I was angry. Um, are you still angry? I'm still angry, but I'm sleeping better. <laughs> was it affecting your sleep? It was, yeah. I was thinking about it's so, so many mysteries for me, like why this happened and who was involved and, and why people were able to add to my account. Um, so I was both angry and curious, which is a fun combination. Lisa, her mother, that manager from the GP practice... They weren't the only people finding out they had records they didn't know about. It was happening to other people as well. People across New South Wales and in Victoria and North Queensland, all being sucked into this system they knew nothing about. Hello, Joshua speaking. This is Joshua Badge. I'm a lecturer in philosophy at Deakin University. Joshua says that when the decision was made to switch from opt-in to opt-out, something interesting happened regarding the nature of consent. We shift from active to assumed or implied consent. So when someone is actively consenting, um, they have all of the knowledge required to make the decision um, and they decide that they wish to be a part of that system and so they give their consent. Uh, And this, in a sense, legitimises the system. However, when we shift to the opt-out model, that consent is no longer active. And Joshua says that's because people aren't necessarily aware of what's going on around them. So they may not have a full understanding of what the system is, what it's for, how it affects them, and what the government may do with it. And instead, it's simply assumed, which Uh, you know, kind of uh, ethically speaking, somewhat questionable. You know, why is it that we can simply assume that millions upon millions of people wish to be a part of this system? And, you know, that's especially the case when we think that, you know, not everyone necessarily stands to benefit from it. And remember, a lot of people are at risk here. Everyone's being pulled along with the system, regardless of whether or not it's of benefit to them personally. So it's, you know, capturing all these groups that have privacy concerns um, and prosecution concerns. And what we're talking about here is people's control over their lives and more specifically their control over what is, you know, what is done to them medically and, you know, what is essentially published about them in a sense. So we're talking about government paternalism, you know. The government thinks that it knows best for citizens and so it acts in certain ways. And while government paternalism isn't necessarily a bad thing, it can go too far. The issue is when paternalism is combined with certain kinds of restrictions on the actions of citizens. So in this case, you know, it was decided what was best for everyone, that they were on the system. And in fact, not only was the default setting was to be opt-in, but the default privacy setting is the, the broadest setting. Everyone should be on the system and everyone's information should be available. Once you go into the My Health record, 
on top of the default that creates a record for you, you see another default at work. Any health data present on your record is able to be used for what is labelled secondary purposes. The secondary use of information refers to the use of information for non-personal reasons. So the, the main reason that's being thought of here is for research. If uh, medical researchers have access to anonymised data of this scale, then they can proceed with all kinds of investigations and research that would potentially benefit everyone. None of this is to say that medical research through this sort of data manipulation isn't important. It is, and it can be used to save lives. We're interested in looking at patterns across population use where we can, where we can see predictors, where we can see risk factors for poor health or risk factors for not being treated well in the health system and try and feed that in. So people to, to get better access or to get better outcomes. And Jane Hall says that from what she's seen as a researcher, people don't mind as long as they know about it. People are very happy about that. I think the concern is how information that they have provided for their own health benefit might get used, might get whether it's used legitimately, and that's legitimately in terms of the current legislation, or illegitimately because of hackers. An important point is that the data would be anonymised. But as we've seen in the past, that process may be able to be reversed. Just last year, researchers from Melbourne University were able to re-identify people from their MBS data, and it's not really clear that this system would be any different. And that means you could potentially be identifiable. Even if the intention is to use data in a secondary way, you know, positively through research, there is a kind of security privacy concern nevertheless. So what do we do about all this? Perhaps people who are worried about it shouldn't just make a knee-jerk reaction but think about what the costs and benefits are likely to be for them. If they're people who have chronic diseases, who have to see multiple providers, then the benefits for them individually are going to be much higher uh, than people who, who haven't got to that stage. And perhaps we should ask, are these the sort of systems that we want our government enforcing on us? Because remember, systems like these that automatically affect millions of Australians are never without their costs. So many mistakes have already been made in my case. Um, those mistakes, like what would you list well, the biggest ones? Like um, creating my account without informing me, like uploading my personal information without asking my consent or without talking to me, like uh, not following up with participants in the trial, if I was a participant in the trial, um, like not being available for me to contact and confirm anything about whether I was a participant, which I think is completely unethical. Um, uh, like not recording in my record when the record was created or by whom. I, I don't think there's anything that the practices can do really to uh, restore my faith in the my health record system because now I have this relationship with them as the person who complains and you know I'll be really careful now about exactly what I'm telling who and um, where that information is going because even without wanting to these people betrayed my confidence and all they can do is apologize really 
quick note. So, on the 31st of July, the Health Minister Greg Hunt announced there would be changes to the legislation of the My Health Record. He said he would ensure that if any Australian wished to cancel their record, they could do so permanently, with their record deleted from the system. Though, as of today, we're still yet to hear how that's going to work, and just how permanent, permanent will be. If I'm told that it has been deleted from the record, then I, I want proof of that, because it's important to me. And so Lisa, and many others, they're still waiting. been listening to Think Digital Futures. This show is supported by the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. It's broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Big thanks in this episode to Jane Hall, Joshua Badge and Lisa. You also heard from economist Richard Thaler speaking in a clip from the University of Chicago. If you want more info, as always, head to the website on 2SER.com slash thinkdigitalfutures. This show is produced at 2SER which sits upon the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Until we meet again, I'm Joe Coney.